Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Since one of our speakers found the podium here on his own, we're just going to go ahead and get started here um, a few minutes earlier than we sometimes do. Uh, my name is David Bose. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I want to welcome everybody to our discussion today. Uh, this discussion will be um, up on the website uh, later today or tomorrow, so if you miss anything, you'll have a chance to watch it again. And I have been doing some research recently uh, using political science polling data to distinguish libertarians from liberals and conservatives and from anti-libertarians also. And one of the ways you do that is figure out, well, what are, you know, what are the definitions of liberals, conservatives, libertarians? Um, and the orthodox definition has been um, – in, in political science literature, the orthodox definition was that a liberal favors government intervention in the economy and protection of civil liberties, while a conservative is opposed to both economic intervention and the expansion of civil liberties. Well, these days you may have noticed there aren't too many conservatives opposing government intervention and higher taxes, or at least higher spending. And there are even fewer liberals defending the fundamental civil liberty of free speech. I think you can point to hate speech laws and speech codes on campus, but in particular you can point to restrictions on political speech, which I suppose is what we may debate today as to whether money is speech. Uh, but certainly from my point of view, Conservatives have often defended restrictions on free speech by saying the First Amendment didn't mean obscenity, it didn't mean blasphemy, it sure didn't mean nude dancing. Now, founders didn't have any of that stuff in mind. What they had in mind was protecting political speech, which is essential for a democracy. And that, of course, is the issue with regard to campaign finance regulation. Um, whether you are restricting the political speech that is at the heart of a democracy. And that's why John Samples had to write the book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, uh, because that is an important topic. I'm going to introduce our three panelists today and then let them speak. Um, our first speaker will be the author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, John Samples. Uh, John directs the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government, uh, which studies how the state encroaches on civil liberty and how limited constitutional government protects liberty. Uh, besides this book, he has edited or co-edited four books in the past few years, including most recently a book called The Marketplace of Democracy, which is an edited collection on competitive politics published by the Brookings Institution. Prior to joining Cato, he was for eight years director of the Georgetown University Press, and before that he was vice president of the 20th Century Fund. He holds a Ph.D. in political theory from Rutgers. Uh, Robert Bauer is firm-wide chair of the political law practice at Perkins Coy. He's the author of More Soft Money, Hard Law, the second edition of the Guide to the New Campaign Finance Law and many scholarly articles. He maintains a website, moresoftmoneyhardlaw.com, and writes an influential blog on these kinds of issues. He has served as counsel for, among others, the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Senatorial Committee, the Democratic Congressional Committee, the Bill Bradley for President campaign, and I believe is currently National Counsel for Voter Protection for 
the Democratic National Committee, and he holds a law degree from the University of Virginia. And we also have with us one of the leading journalists in this field, Eliza Newland Carley, who's currently a contributing editor to National Journal, where she writes in-depth features on Congress, politics, and campaign finance issues. She also writes a political money column for nationaljournal.com and contributes to Congress Daily and Government Executive. She holds a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and her work has been recognized by the Capitol Press Women and the Philadelphia Press Association. So to kick off our discussion, please welcome the author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, John Samples. Thank you, David. Uh, It's great to be here today, and it's great to look out and to see so many of my friends and people I've come to know over the years. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out uh, to uh, talk about the issue of campaign finance and the issue of freedom of speech. Before I begin, I'd like particularly to recognize a a gentleman, a friend of mine who just came in, Herbert Alexander. Many of you uh, may not know, if you're not a political scientist, But Herb is, in fact, the founder of the database study of campaign finance in political science. He's essentially the person that started the work that began. It's culminated in part in my book, but in the work of many other people in campaign finance. So it's a great delight to see Herb here today, and thank you for coming. Um, Much has been said about campaign finance regulation, so-called campaign finance reform. Brian Anderson uh, in City Journal wrote not too long ago uh, a phrase that has been echoed by George Will many times. Brian said, quote, the campaign for, for campaign finance reform represents the most sustained attack on free political speech in the United States since the 1798 Alien and Sedition Acts, unquote. Now, we live in a city that People state things quite clearly and sometimes exaggerate, and you may think that's an exaggeration. In this book, I hope, and in my speech today, I want to suggest that maybe it's not, that there are important reasons to be concerned. Indeed, I want to talk a little bit about what kind of book this is first. In campaign finance, and I want to think of it in terms of an analogy of home renovation. When you're setting about doing home renovations, usually you do things like maybe you paint a foyer or maybe you think about adding a room or redoing a room, something like that. In other words, you proceed incrementally. Well, most of the debate in Washington about campaign finance is like that. It's that kind of home renovation. The FEC proposes a regulation or someone outside, an outside group proposes a regulation. It's debated. It's very incremental. Everything that is already on the books stays there, and we decide about whether we add a little bit more, another regulation. Well, this book isn't that kind of home renovation. This is a book that really asks whether the House of Campaign Finance Regulation is a good one, whether its foundations are solid, whether maybe we should sell the house and move somewhere else, or maybe we should tear the house down and start again. It's a book that tries to question the whole of campaign finance and where we've come to this point and to do so from a philosophic point of view. I should say also I hope it is not a book that is boring because most people think campaign finance is boring, the study of it. I used to think this myself. 
But I, the book itself is really, as I wrote it, I came to understand, it's really about conflict. It's about fighting and struggle. It's about a conflict, first of all, of visions of politics, and then it's about also a conflict between insiders and outsiders. Now, I want to talk first a little bit about the conflict of visions uh, within the struggle over campaign finance regulation. The Madisonian vision of politics is the one that animates the Constitution. It animates much of political culture. It gives the United States and its citizens a sustained concern about liberty and limited government. It's, it's uh, rooted in the notion that the individual is the basis of government, that, in, that individualism is an important value, that the individual has natural rights that are protected against government action, and therefore that government is limited in important ways. In that sense, the First Amendment is entirely a Madisonian product, not least because he wrote it. It's entirely a Madisonian product and part of the Madisonian vision because it puts restraints on government. It is an effort to restrain um, government action with regard to political speech. And money, I should argue, and I do in the book, is also essential to speech, both as spending, which has been recognized by the Supreme Court, and as other kinds of spending through campaign contributions. The Madisonian vision says that limits on government are needed, particularly in regard to political speech, because those who hold power have every incentive, they have every reason to prevent competition, to try to restrict those who would challenge their power. In other words, and this is an important point, the Madisonian vision does say, Madison wasn't an anarchist, government is necessary, he called it an unfortunate necessity, but we should not expect it to be benevolent, particularly in its regulatory reach, and particularly when the incentives are all wrong, as I will discuss later. So for the Madisonian, the First Amendment is a restriction on power. There is The conflict, however, is with what I would call the progressive vision. The progressive vision is the vision of politics, the set of ideals that animates, ultimately, campaign finance regulation and the struggle to have more of it. The progressive vision is, in contrast to Madison, defined by a concern about collective goods and collective welfare, and not about individual rights so much against government. It sees active, large government as a way to achieve a number of collective ends. And it's interesting, I think, though, that we are familiar with the progressive vision being applied first to the area that we would call economic. That is, when you think back to the progressive era and you think about its culmination in the New Deal and afterwards, and post-World War II, you think about a regulatory effort that spreads and primarily concerns the macro economy or or specific sectors of the economy. It is important to remember, I think, that for much of the last century, progressivism was identified with that and also made an exception for politics. That is, if you look at progressives, say, at, at between the end of the New Deal and the beginning of World War II, they want to carve out politics as having protections from government power that did not exist for economic activity or private property. 
So there's a division there. What campaign finance regulation does and the history of it is to get rid of that distinction as progressivism, in a sense, um, develops in a way that you move from a period where, regula- where government is not limited in regard to the economy and it's also not limited in regard to politics and political speech. In other words, it's entirely reasonable to find the most important, I would guess, progressive lawyer of my generation calling for a new deal for political speech. A new deal for political speech. The regulatory power of the federal government should reach not just to the economy, but also to politics and political speech. And this is because money in politics corrupts the society and corrupts the government. It corrupts representation, it is said. It corrupts democracy by creating inequalities of influence. It corrupts the political culture by uh, convincing people not to be involved in politics. It corrupts uh, the elections by reducing electoral competition. All of these have been arguments about why government intervention is needed in order to, along with, uh, it corrupts by destroying confidence in government, the so-called argument uh, about uh, the appearance of corruption as a justification for regulation. Now, all of those things have been said, and in my book, I look at what we've actually known about that, what we have found, what social scientists who, I must say, by and large, have approached this issue trying to discover what the truth is, what they have found about these justifications. In my view, and you'll see the evidence there, in my view, the justifications fall far short of what is commonly believed, therefore far short of a justification for the extensive system of regulation we have. For progressives, too, this progressivism that I'm talking about, the First Amendment is not a check on government, but it is a way that empowers the government to realize certain values, like increased political participation or equality of influence or the integrity of the government. The First Amendment is not a limit, but a way for government to become more powerful. Now, in, in the end, I think, and one of the things I think uh, may be different about this book is I want to say there are, in the end, two kinds of progressivism, one that is far dominant and another that isn't. The one that isn't dominant is what I would call, perhaps, progressivism in exile. That is, that's the notion that goes back, and if you live, grew up in the 60s and 70s, the idea that You know, it was always political liberals that were trying to defend freedom of speech. The kind of progressivism that recognized that there was a difference and wanted to draw a line between uh, the economy and politics, that wanted to say, yes, the government can regulate the economy, but it should not regulate politics and political speech and political activity. Now, that progressivism in exile still exists. You still see it. The ACLU does join the Cato Institute in lawsuits. But the dominant trend has been one, I think, that sees, uh, that is the dominant progressivism, is one that sees um, no limitations on government power and politics, and indeed sees the private ultimately as a severe problem. Private activity, private financing as a stain on the body politic, on the fabric of government. 
the ultimate solution, approached mildly and then, when possible, more so, is that the private has to be regulated and then ultimately removed from politics. Clean elections, which is a term that it will be on the ballot in California in about six weeks, ultimately means a politics that is free of private financing, private activity. Because that is the way, because ultimately the private corrupts. It corrupts through inequality. It corrupts through uh, bribery of public officials. So the obvious conclusion is public financing with no private financing. Now, just before I go on and talk about the other conflict that's at the heart of campaign finance, I want to mention one point, which is this. If the private is um, the source of corruption through inequality or otherwise, how is it going to be the case that other freedoms in the First Amendment, like freedom of the press, the media corporations that are carry out freedom of the, and exercise freedom of the press, private entities that exercise influence over elections, over politics, over what people believe, how is it ultimately that they too are going to be f ultimately stay free of government control? Well, some people in this uh, sort of dominant progressivism I want to talk about have, to their credit, have recognized this and said basically there's going to have to be um, repression of some private actors. That's part of the logic of the argument. It is the logic of this dominant progressivism that is part of the problem because if there's always going to be more reform, you have to ask where is that always going to be going? And this is where. So that is not something that has impressed itself to all too much on the media yet. Let me talk about the other conflict, the, other, the conflict between insiders and outsiders, the conflict between incumbents and challengers. This is a conflict that is written deeply in the politics of campaign finance regulation. But remember, it is also a conflict that raises questions about a central progressive theme, which is state action in regard to politics and political speech is going to be benevolent. The history, unfortunately, says otherwise. I think one example is a very good one, a sort of anecdote that reveals much about this area. That is the role of incumbents, campaign finance law, and challengers. In, uh, two th in the, the elections of uh, 2000, if you remember, think back to the 1990s and uh, the competitive elections of that period, there were a number of entities who were spending so-called soft money, which was money given to parties and otherwise, uh, and it was outside uh, campaign finance contribution limits, it was perfectly legal, and it was also used often for very hard-hitting ads. It was often used, of course, I mean this is only makes sense, to use uh, to attack vulnerable members of the other party. Now, one of those members lived in, in Florida. He's a very powerful and influential member of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. Um, and he was considered vulnerable at the time and had a very hard campaign in 2000. Uh, and at that time, during that, the sort of height of the campaign when the union ads were coming in and saying all sorts of bad things about his mother and his dog and telling lies about him, he was interviewed by a Washington Post reporter. 
And she, she asked him about it, and he said, you know, and he'd been a supporter, been against campaign finance, against McCain-Feingold, and he said, you know, I never really understood until now the danger of soft money to our democracy. I never really understood what a threat it was, but now I understand. A, by the way, it's amazing to me what people will tell newspaper reporters directly and be quoted on. He said, now I understand the threat. And then he said, when we get back and get in session, we're going to deal with this threat. And indeed, Congress returned to session in 2001, 2002. By March of 2002, soft money no longer existed. The so, and the ads that had been attacking him had become electioneering communications. And they, too, had not been banned, but had been defined in such a way that they were likely to disappear. So in a sense, my point here is the insiders write the laws. You can't expect them to write benevolent laws for the general welfare, particularly in this area. If you look at the actual campaign finance laws, you see much that supports this proposition. In particular, if you look at the foundations of much of uh, campaign finance law. It goes back to 1971 law and its amendments in 1974. Well, where did that law come out of? In the book, I look at the years 1969 to 74 and what went before. Remember 1968, the year that anything seemed possible? Well, there were possible things, things that members of Congress and the dominant party didn't like. If you remember that year, Eugene McCarthy unseated a sitting president by winning a primary in New Hampshire. He won that primary based on television ads, which he spent about a quarter of a million dollars on, which was unheard of at that time, and on contributions by about four people, all six-figure contributions. 1968, George Wallace ran very strong, upsetting the Democratic Party establishment. As it turned out, he had lots of money from small contributors in that year. Again, outside, any, the system didn't exist. And finally, Richard Nixon won the election that year based, it was thought, on television and lots of campaign finance contributions. In 1969, in the spring of that year, just like our Republican friend in 2001, members of Congress came back and introduced legislation to put limits on broadcast spending. Not just limits on spending, limits on television spending, what McCarthy, Wallace, and Nixon had used in 1968. It's called a smoking gun for my thesis. Legislation went on. Nixon uh, vetoed some of it. But ultimately, you got spending limits in the 1974 law. And I went back and looked. What would be the effects of these spending limits and campaign finance laws on challengers? In the 1972 elections, if you, if you had applied the 74 law to them that was written by the people who ran in the 1972 elections, 12 of 14 victorious challengers would have had their spending reduced by an average of 32%. In other words, if you just look at the law and how it would have applied to the people who wrote it, they would have been able to reduce the spending by those who challenged them by one-third on average, the ones that won, the ones that were most dangerous. 
I would also point out here that uh, the basic law contained presidential public financing, uh, a system that continues down to this day. If you look at what had happened before 1976 and what happened, that is party trends and fundraising, and then you look at the presidential system and its effects, what you would find, and what I did find, was this. The limits in the law would put no limits at all on the expected spending on Democratic presidential candidates. They track each other perfectly. In other words, the limits in the law are what you would expect the Democratic presidential candidates to have spent from 1976 to 1992. Uh, the law was written by a Democratic majority. If, on the other hand, you look at the Republican expectations, it would have cut their spending of presidential candidates during the same period by 70%. Again, campaign finance law is about, not about being nice to other people. It's about figuring out ways to tip the game in your favor. Now, McCain-Feingold. McCain-Feingold was not a Democratic law. It was supported by the members of the Democratic Party, but it couldn't be because there were, they had lost majorities for most of the time in the two houses. In a sense, it had to be a Republican law. John McCain faced the problem of getting Republicans to vote for it. It had two elements that I've mentioned to you. It essentially prohibited soft money fundraising, and it made it difficult, if not impossible, and in some cases impossible, to run the kind of elections ads that had been aimed at vulnerable candidates for re-election. I looked at the, the members of the House who voted for McCain-Feingold and those who did not. The members who voted for McCain-Feingold, uh, George Bush had something on the order of 49% on average in their districts. The ones who voted against it, George Bush got about 58% on average. That means and what, that essentially Republic, vulnerable Republicans voted for McCain-Feingold. It is their law. Now, there is a great irony in this. Now, this isn't com pure incumbent protection, but there's a great irony in this. Focus on Chris Shays and Nancy Johnson uh, in Connecticut. They are Republicans in essentially Democratic districts. If they survive in six weeks' time, it, there will be no small thanks because who, the people that would have been there, the unions, the ads, the attack ads, the critical ads that would have been in their district attacking them if McCain-Feingold had not passed were not there because soft money had been banned and electioneering communications had been made illegal, essentially. And I would say this, the Democrats voted for this law, and they may ultimately have, have passed a law that's going to perhaps prevent them from retaking the House of Representatives. Now, let me finish quickly. What about the future? I put a full agenda of deregulation and how that might look in the book. But the first thing to do is to stop. We've lived through about 10 years now of increasing regulation. A kind of tsunami rose up in the 90s and reached landfall in 2002 and 2003 with McCain-Feingold and with um, McConnell versus FEC, Supreme Court decision. In 2005, 527 groups noticed that their living rooms were full of water and started to wonder if their houses were going to be pulled out to sea. That same year, filmmakers like Michael Moore 
And bloggers noticed that the water was in their house too and it was up to their knees. In 2006, 501c4 leaders began to feel a little damp. In other words, the regulatory thrust has got to play itself out and to be stopped. Then we might have a possibility for deregulation. The other thing I would say in conclusion is this. It's important that we regain a true presumption of liberty in political matters. We now live in a world in which the uh, justification for the state regulating and restricting political activity is quite low. You saw that in McConnell versus FEC. It's important to rebuild the notion that it's important to be protected against state power because it's not going to be benevolent. That job will fall to the Roberts Court in part, but it's also something that every American is going to need to believe if we are to regain our traditional liberties. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And now please welcome Bob Bauer for a comment. I am here uh, as the progressive in exile. I've been summoned by uh, John from exile uh, to express myself on this subject. I'm a lifelong Democrat, uh, an enormous admirer of John's work. So I'd like to say a few things about the book and a few things about the way in which it strikes me as, uh, in his terms, a progressive in exile, which is to say uh, someone who has spent uh, his entire professional life in the Democratic Party and my father before me a very ardent Democrat who once chastised me for going to the swimming pool in 1968 without attaching a Humphrey button to my bathing suit. So it was a partisan household, and I'm a very partisan Democrat in that sense, and I hope not in some of the uglier senses in which we see a partisanship expressed today. Let me say a couple of things about, again, John's book and then about how it strikes me as a progressive in exile. First of all, uh, having read the book now twice, um, it is absolutely correct that while this is a very serious and very thoughtful book with a very powerful theoretical grasp on the issues and a command of the empirical research, it is not dull, not at all. And for those of us who love politics, uh, just for the sheer clash and color and drama of it, there's plenty of that in John Samples' book. And as a matter of fact, uh, there's a chunk of political history here which is absolutely riveting over this period of time from 1969 to 1974, an extraordinarily interesting period in American political history. John vividly renders campaign finance as one of the battles taking place over that time period. And he raises questions which I think will grab the attention of people perhaps not yet in exile, but perhaps migrating in that direction. Uh, one of the actors here is Gene McCarthy. And as many of you probably know, um, McCarthy, who passed away recently, was always an ardent opponent of campaign finance regulation. And he took this view, though I think he later tried to develop it somewhat theoretically, he took this view from his experience as a presidential candidate. And his view was that people like himself, political insurgents, in his case attacking from the left, stood no chance against long odds, certainly no chance against the extraordinary political power of Lyndon Johnson in a period of time, by the way, when the Democratic Party was perhaps functioning more as a machine with a machine leader at the top, and I don't mean that, by the way, at all disparagingly, because in many ways I'm a great admirer of Johnson's, but his basic view was that those who would speak out, 
against those who possess power and exercised it as skillfully as Johnson stood no chance under a regime where those who had the power set the rules. And I uh, had the uh, great honor of participating with him in a symposium in Florida, which was set up as a trial of campaign finance reform, incidentally, uh, by a university there. And Gene McCarthy, McCarthy agreed to come and be called as one of my witnesses. And he performed, uh, needless to say, splendidly and with acid wit. And he remained uh, committed on this point uh, to the very end. And some of you may also know that once uh, having run within the Democratic Party, he subsequently also ran outside of it. So it's a very interesting book, and it's a very strong political story. This free speech question is one that I think is a burning one. And unfortunately, it's now overlaid with the view that these are all simple regulatory matters. The beginning of the end, from my point of view, is when every problem of free speech is reduced from a constitutional to a regulatory problem. It's simply a technical matter. We don't have to worry so much about the First Amendment. It lies out there as a bulwark against the most extreme government behavior. But we are all technicians, and I'm a technician. I spend a good bit of every single day trying to explain this law to people who are affected by it. Sometimes they're affected by it, much to their complaint, because it inhibits something they want to do. Other times they raise it with me with um, uh, great enthusiasm because they hope it inhibits something their opposition would like to do. One way or the other, uh, over across a broad range of issues, ads that are broadcast within 30 and 60 days of an election, or the circumstances under which someone may speak, an officeholder may speak at a state party fundraising event, or the endorsement that a federal candidate may offer a state candidate, or even most recently internet speech. Time and again, what we find is that we're running up against restrictions under federal law in the name of corruption or even just its evanescent appearance. And the result of this is that we have now fallen into what I would call bad speech thinking. There's good speech, which is healthy speech, and there's bad speech, which is unhealthy speech. And of course, McCain-Feingold has an unhealthy speech provision, the so-called stand-by-your-ad requirement, which causes uh, office holders to have to say, uh, I think uh, quite embarrassingly, uh, that they've improved these various ads, they've approved their ads, and this is meant to shame them into not something, saying something nasty about their opposition. I think we can all judge from our, uh, from our television sets the effectiveness of this bit of lawmaking. Uh, people have to approve sometimes what they have to approve. And much of the negative speech of today, which is thought to be unhealthy because it is also informative speech, because it also is speech that grabs the attention of the electorate, is taking place even though we have forced candidates onto the air to say that they've approved it and we have failed to shame them into disapproving it. My last two comments uh, that I just will make about John's book have to do with the careful treatment of evidence. One of the ways in which the campaign finance reform argument has run so successfully in a certain direction over the years is that certain arguments are considered legitimate, certain evidence considered uh, admissible, other arguments considered simply outrageous, and the evidence not creditable. And this is probably something we see more reflected in media accounts. You see it in casual conversations with many members of the press who simply regard some of the arguments you will see reflected in this book as simply unbelievable, not credible. Everybody knows that government is corrupt, so indeed corrupt that these restrictions are necessary and indeed upon close examination these restrictions are claimed to be relatively innocuous. And an entire industry has cropped up around making the extraordinary seem ordinary and the constitutional appear technical. And uh, I will just uh, cite, uh, in closing, a, an example, which is I received through my website the other day what I would call a creed occur, 
from a collection of bikers on the West Coast who were planning to take a bike ride and drop off literature paid out of their own pocket uh, that would indicate that a certain member of Congress in their jurisdiction was corrupt. And the question was whether I would be willing, since they read the website or they Googled me or for whatever the reason was, uh, they wanted to know whether or not I'd be willing to provide them legal advice. And so uh, nine paragraphs of email text followed in which I told them, number one, I couldn't represent them because I didn't know them and I didn't know all the facts, but I didn't want to leave them entirely unattended to. And so I offered them a disquisition on express advocacy and on the difference between express advocacy and the so-called PASO standard, which means promote, support, attack, and oppose, and what the difference is both from the standpoint of disclosure requirements and also source of funds uses and whether or not in certain circumstances perhaps their collective action might constitute them as a political committee. (laughs) And then I imagined this collection of people in their Speedo suits uh, riding right off the road into a ditch, which is unfortunately where too much free speech in this country has been left. And so I just want to echo the view here uh, that this is indeed a time to consider a true presumption of liter- in our polit- literature and our political s- of liberty in our political speech, and with his book, John Samples has done something that few before him have been able to do, which is to put this argument on a very, very solid grounding. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. And finally, uh, please welcome Eliza Newland Carney. Hello. Uh, first, I want to thank John Samples for writing this book and for inviting me to discuss it. It's an intellectually honest book that avoids many of the partisan pitfalls and misrepresentations that so often define debates over campaign finance policy. And uh, there were many parts, as Bob said, that were really very entertaining to read, and I think that John has contributed a lot to the the literature in this area. However, uh, reading this book, I felt the way I often do when confronted with the philosophy of total deregulation in campaign finance, would that it were true. As an argument and a philosophy, it's so clean and simple. But to quote John's own introduction, the satisfaction it offers does not make it true. Looking at a house that's not perfect, it's tempting to tear it down. But in this case, you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We want things to be clean, simple, and unambiguous. Unfortunately, this great democracy of ours is sometimes messy and complicated. The business of regulating campaigns pulls experts, lawmakers, and the courts into territory that is nuanced, complex, sometimes confusing. But it would be a big mistake to say that simply because enforcing the rules demands care and sensitivity that they should be thrown out altogether. As in the world of economics and business, we're learning the hard way that the free market does not trump all. And as we've seen with the ongoing scandals on Wall Street, healthy economic systems demand not only freedom, but also transparency and accountability. The same goes for politics. To put it simply, corruption is not good for democracy. At a time when our American citizens are sacrificing their lives to cultivate democracy in Iraq and the surrounding region, it's particularly important that our own democracy remain healthy, robust, and worthy of the public trust. Here I want to talk a little bit about corruption. One of the important premises of this book is that corruption is a fiction, an illusion, if you will, that leads reformers on a wild goose chase down many unconstitutional avenues. I have a couple of responses. One is that political scientists have studied this issue, and what they found is a little more complicated than what's presented here. True, it's not always easy to prove direct correlations between campaign contributions and voting behavior, although many have tried. But what you find is that money influences a lot of what Bert Levine of Colgate University, himself a former lobbyist, calls unrecorded legislative activity. 
The problem is not that money buys votes, according to Levine. The problem is that it plays a large role in areas that are harder to track, such as amendments written into or left out of a, vi- a bill in advance. And that's one reason I think that you've seen such a heated debate on Capitol Hill recently over earmarks, much of reflecting outrage on the part of Republicans as well as Democrats at a process that appears to be skewed and unduly influenced by moneyed interests. My second point on corruption is that timing is awkward at best for this particular argument. The book states that corruption is relatively rare and imposes relatively harm on, little harm on society. But within the last 12 months, we've seen an ex-congressman, Randy Cunningham of California, in jail on a bribery conviction, a sitting congressman, William Jefferson, under criminal investigation for potential bribery following the discovery of 90,000 cash in his freezer, uh, former Majority Leader Tom DeLay stepped down amid allegations that he violated the Tex- Texas campaign finance laws with his soft money leadership pack, and amid ongoing investigation into his ties with disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff, who pled guilty to three counts of conspiracy bribery and tax evasion earlier this year. We have Congressman Bob Day, who's pled guilty to corruption in connection with his dealings with Abramoff. Another congressman, a Democrat, Alan Mollahan, reportedly is under investigation from the FBI in connection with his real estate interests and in controversial nonprofits. Not to mention, of course, the recent abrupt resignation of Congressman Mark Foley, which is not directly related to these campaign finance and lobbying controversies, but which has underscored the public perception that this Congress somehow considers itself above the rules. Amid this truly extraordinary catalog of congressional abuses, are we now to conclude that the solution is to eliminate the rules and expect lawmakers to regulate themselves? I don't think so. Certainly, the book is correct in pointing out that the reform movement has strayed from the corruption argument into questionable territory. Um, Too often, for example, various reform groups have gotten distracted by ancillary goals that have nothing to do with corruption and can't be justified on the basis of a compelling government interest. These include the questionable notion that campaigns should somehow be fair or conducted on an even playing field, that campaigns should somehow be nice, sanitized, and untainted by upsetting negative ads, that campaigns and candidates should face limits on the amount of money they should spend, a notion that the Supreme Court rejected first in its landmark Buckley ruling and more recently in its Randall v. Sorrell ruling that overturned spending limits in Vermont. But fallacy overstates uh, or paints a, or, excuse me, overstates the unifi- uh, unified, uh, the notion of a unified reform movement. Uh, the reform movement is very disparate, and um, there are some who go off in unconstitutional tangents and others who stick to the constitutionally justifiable goal of uh, eliminating corruption. The one thing that I would say about this is, too, the book is very quick to dismiss public financing as an antidote to problems in campaign financing, because so often public financing schemes are tied to the idea that uh, spending limits should be accompanying them. The truth is that there are reformers who believe in public financing uh, not tied to spending limits, and I think this is one idea that is not explored as fully as it could be in the book. Uh, The idea of floors, not ceilings, as expounded by Curtis Gantz, would be a way, for example, to bring public money into the system on a voluntary checkoff basis, as it is today, not mandatory, uh, and possibly address some of the overlooked uh, supply-side aspects of the campaign finance equation. Um, The book also points to polling that purports to show that voters reject public financing But truthfully, most pollers will tell you that there's really not that much reliable polling data here. And in fact, if any, a couple of recent polls uh, show growing support for public financing. And as we've seen, it's increasingly popular at the state level, which suggests that uh, voters are not quite as opposed to it as they might appear to be. Uh, I'm going to sort of fast forward to the end here. 
Uh, just briefly say the McCain-Feingold law has not been quite as much of, his, of a disaster as some of its critics uh, point, make it out to be. Uh, you know, there were predictions that the parties would be totally decimated. That's certainly not proven to be the case. Uh, they've had an outpouring of small contributions. If anything, in this election, the parties could play uh, a greater role than they have in the past. Uh, even the so-called 527 groups, which were portrayed as these new soft money entities in the last election, have sort of fallen off in this election and uh, are active at the state level, but they're not really the bogeyman that people have pointed them out to be. I'd say briefly also on the small donor issue, uh, it'd be interesting to see what would happen if Eugene McCarthy, as a sort of political insurgent, how he would do today in the era of Internet and blog-driven fundraising. You know, it's not inconceivable, for example, that he could have the kind of uh, $100,000 of contributions in small donors uh, that actually we've seen in some of these campaigns, including that of Ned Lamont. So in sum, the book, while as Bob says, very entertaining, certainly worth reading, and intellectually honest, very good contribution to the discussion, to me basically is too simple in its conclusions. You know, it'd be tempting to look at the mess of campaign finance regulation and say, throw it all out. Uh, and it's an appealing solution, but in the real world, regulating elections of necessity involves a balancing act. Uh, we all know it well. The right of candidates, parties, and individuals to spend freely on politics must be balanced with the right of citizens and voters to know who is financing the elections and with the government's interest in combating corruption and the appearance of corruption, something that the Supreme Court has upheld time and time again. Uh, again, the book has much to commend it, and it's uh, got an elegant argument, but it's just too simple. The real world of campaign finance and politics is messier and more complicated than that. Uh, the case for a world without rules may carry the day in academic circles, but I predict that it won't wash with voters, as we may well see on the campaign trail this fall. Thank you, Eliza. And now let's open this up for uh, questions and discussion. Uh, wait for a microphone to come to you, and please uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you're not seeking to conceal. Uh, right here. Thank you, Radio. Okay, I, I guess it's on. Uh, I do have a question, but first of all, I'd like to compliment the Cato Institute. Identify yourself. My name is Richard Lynch, and I do not claim any affiliation. Uh, I would like to compliment the Cato Institute for putting on uh, forums like this that contain a bit of an edge. Uh, there are many things, other forums available during lunchtime, but this one appeared to be the most interesting, so I decided to come here. Right. Uh, I'd like to, actually, I did have a question at first, but uh, Ms. Carney pretty much covered the ground I was looking at. Uh, so I'll go back to the, the what was on your website with a sentence that says, many Americans know there is little or no evidence that campaign contributions really influence members of Congress. Uh, this, to my opinion, assuming this represents the views of the author, does not represent the views of the real universe. I mean, there is, as Ms. Carney says, there's, there's concrete evidence from the Jefferson and Cunningham situations uh, that money does influence Congress, and, and, and the people who give out the money are not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, the author seems to think that this is a black or white situation, uh, zero regulations needed, all or nothing. But it seems to me that, that, that that's really it's a balancing act. Uh, there's give or take here, and you have to hit the right balance in order to make in order to make a situation that, that, that's acceptable for most situations. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, I guess this is on now. Let let me respond to a little bit what Eliza said, and also what you just said. 
First of all, if it's a balancing act, it seems to me that we're out of balance here. I mean, if you look at the way the struggle goes on in campaign finance and over new or innovative regulations, I mean, there's a very small number of people who actually question them, uh, Bob being one of the few. Uh, I saw George Will the other day, and I said something like, there's five of us now. And he said, well, if there would be a fifth member of the Supreme Court, we'd be in better shape. Um, it's the argument is overwhelmingly on one side. I'm trying to actually add some balance to it by making the free speech case in a, in a new and different way and with some evidence. Now, let me talk about evidence here for a moment. Um, what is in the book represents uh, – the other thing I should say is the book is essentially finished by the end of 2005. So Eliza's right. I caught some bad PR. But you know, on the other hand – you know, I don't go around saying, well, you know, it's just great that William Jefferson had all that money in his uh, freezer. This is not a book defending William Jefferson or anyone committing bribery. In fact, there's a long, there's a few pages in it, the representation chapter, about the difference between bribery and campaign contributions, which is a crucial difference. The second thing is about evidence. If we're going to make policy, we need evidence that is systematic. It can't be anecdotal or limited to, to this or that thing that comes up over time. This, I studied in the book, I noticed 40 studies of high quality in political science and economics over 30 or 40 years that studies the influence of campaign contributions. And the crucial point is this. Once you control for the ideology, the constituency, and the party of a member of Congress, the answer is that campaign contributions themselves have no influence on their roll call voting. The reason for that is people tend to give money to people they agree with, not to get, they don't give money to people to change their vote because it's hard to do and you might make them angry and so on. Now, one last issue. Eliza talks about the question of access. That is, and this is actually once the, the sort of change the vote argument was given up in the political science literature, you went to the access issue. Money doesn't change votes. It changes what people do. There are two studies that, again, systematically try to study this in a scientific way. One study, famous and cited uh, in the, uh, by Rick Hall and a colleague, said, yeah, it does. It sort of motivates people to start doing stuff, not against their own views or anything, but stuff they may not have done. But there was a later and more comprehensive interview, uh, uh, study done in early 2000s by a Columbia University professor that found no evidence that contributions changed, systematic evidence. Now, one of the troubling things about this, and this is why I talk about the presumption of liberty, if you reinstate a strong presumption of liberty in this area, you've got to have damn good systematic evidence that stands up to be able to regulate. And if you don't, then you can't regulate. That's what the presumption of liberty means. The Supreme Court now essentially operates with a presumption of something, but if Congress does it, it's okay with us, basically. A presumption of constitutionality, I think that is. Yeah. Uh, yes, in the middle there, in the back. Um, I would ask, I would direct this question to Eliza. Um, why is it that, or actually to the whole panel, um, the First Amendment contains protections not just for speech, but for the press. And why is it, how is it we have come to a, a place 
where first, the First Amendment is deemed to be absolute when it comes to protecting the right of journalists and the press to speak, but not absolute when it comes to the issues uh, which are at the, at the subject of the book. And so my question is, why is it permissible for corporations such as the one that owns the National Journal to be able to spend what is soft money, corporate dollars, to disseminate, to pay Eliza, to disseminate her views and the views of all others um, who work in that corporate entity, but it is not, uh, and that's protected First Amendment speech, but it is not protected when done in the context of giving corporations making contributions or, or making expenditures in the context of allowing others to speak. And I would be curious as to why one is absolute and entitled to protection, but the speech of others in the society who are not associated with the press, um, that that speech is not protected. What's the justification for that? I, I guess the short answer is you'd have to ask the Supreme Court that. You know, the Supreme Court has... Okay, well, the Supreme Court has ruled in time and time again on cases involving the press that there is this special protection. But I will say that this is not as privileged a realm as it once might have been deemed to be. You know, there was a time when an editorial in the New York Times would have reached millions and millions of people and been considered to be possibly even definitive in a particular local New York race, if nothing else. We're in a different journalistic world now. We have the Internet. We have bloggers. Everyone's a journalist. And you see an interesting development, too, uh, whereby groups like the NRA and other organizations are starting their own publications. And, you know, it goes back to the old aphorism, the power of the press belongs to those who run the presses. If you want to start a newspaper and take all the financial burden of collecting ads and producing it and printing it and sending it around, you can say whatever you want, too. It's not as though this is a world that is blocked out to anybody. And, in fact, any interested person can start a newsletter, news, newspaper, and, and they do. And, in fact, now, especially with the Internet, there isn't even particularly much overhead set up against that. And entities like the Times are finding, in fact, that bloggers or ideologically driven opinion makers are having quite a lot of influence, even with the advertisers. Uh, so it's, it's, it's shaking itself up a little bit, and I think it's worth watching that and appreciating that this is a much more wide-open journalistic world than it might once have been perceived to be. Could I? Any other? Uh, in this area, the, my greatest concern is the question of reciprocity. The media, and particularly prominent newspapers, one of which uh, during McCain-Feingold, Bob, uh, Bob's famous phrase was carpet-bombed through op-eds, uh, through editorials, uh, have been strong supporters of uh, campaign finance regulation. But at the bottom, First Amendment depends on reciprocity in the sense that it, I'll protect your freedoms against the government if you protect mine. If we're expected to support freedom of the press and the freedom of the media, which, by the way, I would urge you to at every way you can at every turn, as a political matter, over time, if the media claim is making claims that, that everyone else should be regulated and we shouldn't, what is going to happen to freedom of the speech over time and freedom of the press. That would be a concern of mine. Okay. Yes, right there. Herb Alexander, uh, professor emeritus at University of Southern California. I want to thank John for his reference uh, to my earlier work. I wrote him after reading a transcript of the book. And I said, the book presents a well-reasoned and fully documented account 
of every aspect of political finance reform. Since it stresses throughout the Madisonian and free speech perspectives, it is a long-needed corrective to the more prevalent but flawed progressive viewpoint on reform. Whatever one's views on the many issues of reform, advocates will find argumentation on all sides. A treatise delving deeply and innovatively into the pros and cons with comprehensive empirical analysis. I would urge every reader of every persuasion to seek out broad consideration of all choices focusing on political finance reform. This is a unique and indispensable reference work for all to benefit from and to better understand the complex factors at work on the role of money in politics. So this could have been a blurb for the book, but in any case, uh, it represents my view uh, that this book is a step forward in terms of analysis of the various factors relating to the role of money in politics. It's a most excellent question, Herb. <laughs> As the uh, sort of publisher of the book, I'm very pleased to hear that. I, I used to read your work when I was a political science student at Vanderbilt, so it's a pleasure to hear that from you. Uh, yes, in the back. Edward Roeder, Sunshine Press. You say that money doesn't work in politics, which suggests that most of America's captains of industry and leaders of labor unions are fools because they keep throwing money at politicians, apparently to no effect. If it doesn't work, why do they keep giving? And I agree with you that the bribery is relatively rare, but the problem is not that the money so often bribes politicians, but that it works. It influences elections. And if it does influence elections, what does that do to our democracy? What does it do to the individual's right to influence his own elections when almost everyone in Congress gets most of their money from people who have no right to vote for them because they live out of state? Uh, thanks for the question. The, the people who – well, first of all, it's important to understand the most uh, common giver – that is the most likely source of money in American political systems, the individual, the average contributions, $100, uh, $200. Um, beyond that, people give because they, as I said, they give money to, by and large, to people that already support them. And they do it because that, uh, we have elections, and elections are in part struggles over uh, what we're going to do in government, what the society is going to be like, and so on. Now, what this, that, so it's the corruption problem would be one where money itself would essentially buy influence and change the system from what it would be like in terms of ideas or constituency interest. That is what a, a representative's constituent wants. That would be a problem. That's the corruption problem defined. What you're talking about perhaps is the problem of equality. That is to say we suspect that some people – have more money and they spend it on elections and it produces outcomes that are unequal and they, it's contrary to some kind of equality of influence that democracy demands or contrary to what, uh, say, the majority wants. Um, the first thing you would say is, and the Supreme Court has said, is there's no right to equality as against free speech. That is, 
you can't trade off free speech against equality. The other thing is I look in the equality chapter about the uh, American political outcomes over uh, about a 30-year period, and it's I present evidence of why uh, the outcomes and the representation was very similar to what the society was like during the time. Uh, liberals were somewhat overrepresented. Conservatives were somewhat overrepresented, but not by much. Uh, uh, people, there's the, the plutocracy argument. The rich are unequal and they dominate the poor. Uh, I show that, the, in fact, government provides many benefits for the poor and also it reflects their political views in many ways. Um, so by the nature of the case, I think, the electoral struggle produces different – that is a struggle for influence, but it has not produced one that is so one-sided to offend democracy would be my argument. Yes, right there. Dr. Mann. Hi. Uh, I'm Tom Mann at uh, the Brookings Institution. John, I look forward uh, to reading mail, your Tom. book. Uh, congratu congratulations. Uh, as we all know, the debate on uh, campaign finance, as is true of so many other issues these days, is intensely polarized. And uh, sort of advocates and analysts uh, each manage uh, – uh, on both sides of this to find evidence that they feel is overwhelmingly in support of, of their position. Uh, uh, and there's not much opportunity for sort of honest brokers to really assess it. Uh, as, as Eliza pointed out and John uh, noted, uh, roll call voting is, is perhaps the least interesting uh, part of this, given the scholarly work on this. Uh, but there's so many other ways in which uh, money influences uh, politics. Someone coming here uh, nowadays would be shocked to hear about the concern about the the lack of speech or the shortage of uh, of money in some way in our politics. We've we've got robust speech, thank God, and we spend a lot of money in politics on campaigns, and thank God that's a that's a good thing. Uh, and so I th I think. Uh, John, you really got to make the case, and you may well do in the book, beyond the theoretical constraints on some individuals you feel or groups, is, is there a shortage of speech? But the main thing I want to I say is I, too, am attracted by the, a more simple, clean notion. I think the present system is jerry-built. So, how would a deregulated uh, system, unregulated system uh, work? Where are the models internationally? Um, do we have only the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, as a model to look to in, uh, in the states? Um, how do ordinary citizens discipline a political marketplace? They're interesting questions, mm -hmm. and, and I think you would, you would really, and you may do some of that in the book, but if, if not enough, then more so. Let's figure out and put on the tape and grapple with the criticisms that people make in countries around the world that have been wrestling with this and have found just unregulated systems unsatisfactory. They, it just doesn't get the job done. So help us understand how it would work and whether it would meet uh, the, the needs, interests, values of, of the American people. Thanks. Uh, 
I don't know if everyone in the uh, audience knows, uh, Tom Mann is one of the leading uh, scholars on the, uh, in many ways on the other side of this argument. Uh, he's been involved in, uh, was involved in McCain-Feingold, and is certainly a person you would turn to to find the best arguments against my book. Uh, and I have to say, it's, it's actually true. I realized while he was talking, I recalled uh, the book has nine chapters and then a tenth chapter that's about, uh, in part, about what a deregulated system would would be like. And I, in part, I wrote that because in my head I was thinking, if I don't write this chapter, I'm going to be somewhere sometime in a few years, and Tom Mann's going to say <laughs> what he just said. So I wrote the last chapter in part for Tom to, to try to say that I wasn't going to duck the issue, the tough issue. But, but before I do that, let me drop back a little bit. I realized in writing that chapter that I've heard Tom argue before about making sort of claims about what has to be shown, what is the presumption, in a sense, that has to be shown in response. And what I recognized as I went through that agenda was this issue about the presumption of liberty. From a Madisonian perspective, the presumption of liberty, the presumption, the burden of proof, is on those who would restrict the liberty. That's why the rest of the book is about, well, let's look at these justifications. Are they good ones? And if they're not, then the presumption is not, uh, the burden is not carried, and the presumption is reinstated. So it is, from a Madisonian point of view, which I argue for extensively in this book, it is not my problem to argue that a certain state of affairs will come about afterwards. It's not, that's more of a, I think, Tom, really, you're looking at it from a progressive point of view, which is that the government's policy is to create a set of conditions thereafter, uh, a set of welfare conditions or however you want to call it. So in a sense, you're asking me to respond to a progressive definition of how this issue should be dealt with. The book is about making a case for Madisonianism in this area and that's why I said, if you get the presumption of liberty and you get the evidence, you're going to have a different world. John should write a book called Up from Progressivism because I think when he got his Ph.D. and when he worked at the 20th Century Fund, he was in that mindset. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add something. Uh, Tom and I have also uh, had occasion to have these disagreements. And like uh, John, I find myself uh, sometimes even thinking something and wondering, I wonder what Tom Mann would say to that, and I usually find out very shortly thereafter. Uh, and there are a couple of things I wanted to say about uh, some of what Tom said, because I agree with John. There are a series of assumptions built into Tom's presentation a minute ago. And granted, it was informal. I'm not holding you to it. But the first is, well, I think there's, been an, uh, there's plenty of money being spent. Well, who decides how much is enough? Uh, I don't know. Who decides how much is enough spent in which way? I don't know. But I'm certain uh, that there are certain people I happen to violently disagree with, and John's book goes very much to this point, that I would rather not have making that decision because I doubt the calls would be made my way. And that is, in fact, the history of campaign finance reform regulation. The gentleman here in the second row who said it's a balancing act raises the question, who's going to be doing the balancing? And what somebody would consider balance might seem to me like a rather heavy weight crushing my speech. So I think that's one of the assumptions Tom makes, is that we can define sort of some optimal level of spending that's just adequate for all our purposes, and beyond that we can agree that it's excessive. And I don't know who makes that decision, and I'm not comfortable conferring that authority on most people. Secondly, and this is very typical of the debate right now, Tom managed to work in the suggestion that this was a marketplace 
which of course indicates immediately that we ought, as Eliza said, to consider it as something that ought to be regulated, <clears throat> like sometimes a dangerous, greedy economic transactions. And I'm concerned about that also, because I think that that begs the question. So I think that in all of these issues, uh, there is, in the debate, not only polarization, but embedded assumptions which need to be brought out so that we can see what's really taking place in the argument. And I would just, my, my last comment on this, uh, which goes to a comment made earlier, but it's not irrelevant uh, uh, to Tom's, and it plays off somewhat of what John just said, which is we have already traveled now, even in this discussion, from bribery, uh, which was cited as one of the reasons why John's book's timing might have been not propitious. I don't agree with that at all. I don't think there's a whole lot in John's book that would engage anybody who is bothered by Duke Cunningham. I mean, I think this is a book that addresses a whole range of different concerns, and I don't think John's defending bribery, and I don't think the book is about bribery, and I don't think anyone's suggesting we repeal the laws that prohibit bribery. But we've gone from there to the discussion that, well, the corruption may not be frontal like bribery. It's something more illicit. It's something that might affect roll, not roll call voting, but amendments that are offered or not offered or priorities. And this follows what the Supreme Court said in the McConnell case, which is corruption, it turns out, is a sneaky little beast. Now, you used to think that votes were being purchased for cash. It turns out it's a much more insidious game than that, at which point the question for me becomes, are we attacking corruption or we have, re have we redefined corruption? So A, we will never find it which means that we have to therefore assume it's knocking about someplace and raise the regulatory stakes even higher? Or are we defining it to mean influence? And increasingly in campaign finance regulatory debates, we find that what people are really troubled about is that there's a certain level of spending that is simply too influential, which brings us back to what I think is the core but unacknowledged basis for many campaign finance reform regulatory proposals, and that's the concern with enforcing a certain vision of equality. Now you say we should have written the book. Yes. Hi, I'm Massey Rich from the Center for Responsive Politics, where we track, among other things, campaign contributions. Uh, if, as you say, money, based on these studies, Dr. Samuels, uh, does not influence lawmaking, um, or if it does, then so what? Uh, what do you think of the lengths that campaigns, the Federal Election Commission, groups like ours go to, to disclose and figure out the identities of donors. Is that a waste of energy and resources? Uh, should this free speech be both unlimited and should it be anonymous as well? That's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it because I, it's Tom's question sort of pointed toward it. Um, and, you know, the sort of argument that I'm too black and white about these issues really uh, I think any kind of deregulatory system is going to have uh, disclosure associated with it, uh, and indeed mandatory disclosure, which is an important distinction to make. Um, and I probably appreciate – I wrote an uh, as yet unpublished article on disclosure um, and how it works, and I probably appreciate the value of disclosure more than I did before I wrote that article. However, the black and white part is there's, I think, with disclosure, we're not careful enough to, to look at counterfactuals and the fact that it has both advantages and disadvantages. It has become oh, another one of these things that Bob was talking about. It was sort of mom and apple pie. It's, it is where we start. It's all, as one, when I first came to the Cato Institute, I was on Wisconsin Public Radio, 
and uh, I was talking about 527 disclosure, and the and, you know I was questioning it, and the host said, "Well, it's only disclosure," and that's sort of where you know disclosure is the place we start, and then we see where we add in addition to that. Well, disclosure is a very complicated matter and has uh, the logic of politics, and we don't can talk much about it in terms of actual uh, how politics works. That said, if you want me to come down and take a place, I would say uh, disclosure, yes. $200 disclosure, you know, at the Cato Institute. At the Cato Institute, I was thinking about uh, making, this doesn't have anything to do with Cato. I was thinking about making a donation to a certain candidate, which I ultimately didn't. Uh, but I was thinking about some of my friends, my colleagues here at Cato, you know, think he's the devil incarnate. <laughs> And so I thought, you know, if I do that, just to save myself a lot of trouble, I better give him $199 um, or God knows what else I might save myself. So I think one of the problems is there's people out there thinking that. I, I think we just really need to liberalize disclosure. $200, $200 may be the average contribution, but it's not going to corrupt anybody. We need to raise those numbers. Uh, so that's part of the answer. And then the rest, there's other arguments in the final chapter. I wouldn't make exactly an argument against disclosure, but I did find it pretty creepy recently to discover that I can look up all my neighbor's political contributions. Maybe that's your website. <laughs> um, and find out how much my neighbors gave. Um, it was helpful. I gave a fundraiser in my house recently, and I invited one of my neighbors, who I did not realize was a neighbor, but I knew her name from public uh, – she's a public figure – I discovered she was a neighbor, and I thought she'd be sympathetic to the cause, so I sent her an invitation. She probably wonders how the hell she got on my list. Um, I also remember when I was in California in 1978, there was an anti-gay initiative on the ballot. And, you know, gay rights was not as advanced as it is today. And I remember a story in the newspaper, which unfortunately predates Nexus, and therefore I haven't been able to look it up and, and find it, but there was a story in the newspaper then that said the campaign against the anti-gay initiative is getting a lot of $99 contributions, and that was because people didn't want their names to be found on a list of people who appeared to be defending gay rights, and I thought that was a reminder of what the downside of disclosure is. It produces a chilling effect on some people. Uh, but the strongest evidence, actually, uh, David, by the way, uh, just produced an argument how disclosure increases political participation. I didn't, <laughs> which is not necessarily my argument, but I would say the most serious evidence was George Soros from 2004. Soros said there were several people that wanted to contribute to our 527 effort, and they they couldn't do it because they could. They were afraid they couldn't come out from under the anonymous speech. And that if they did, they were afraid of the so-called Republican attack machine and one thing or another. But wealthy individuals of, that he was talking about would often uh, – they might lose clients. I mean, there's a lot of – the disclosure problem is things we don't – things that do not happen because it exists. That, but how do you prove something didn't happen? All right, I'm going to take one last question here. I know there are lots more questions, but it's getting toward lunchtime, and I'm going to invite all the speakers to, to offer a response to this question or a summary response right here. Uh, I'm Hans von Spakovsky from the Federal Election Commission, and uh, Dr. Mann said we should get away from theoretical and to real. So I, I have a question for Ms. Carney about 
the most controversial part of uh, campaign finance law, and it's this. I, I think you took the position, taking the position that corruption and the threat of corruption justifies our current regulatory scheme. So my question to you is, what threat of corruption justifies the fact that an organization such as the ACLU or the NAACP cannot run an ad about an issue when it is before Congress just before a vote. And I'll give you a specific example. In the middle of June, the House was debating and voting on the renewal of the Voting Rights Act. And three of the people leading the debate were congressmen from Georgia, Lynn Westmoreland, uh, John Lewis. And if the NAACP had wanted to run an ad the day before the vote that simply said to the public, Voting Rights Act is up for a vote for renewal tomorrow in the House. Please call Congressman Lewis. Please call Congressman Westmoreland and tell them to vote for it or against it. If they had done that, they would be breaking federal law and they would be subject to prosecution, investigation, prosecution, and imposition of civil penalties by the federal government. Now, what, what possibly justifies that kind of response under the First Amendment? Well, uh, the first thing I would do is correct your statement, which is that they would not be penalized for running the law unless they used unregulated money. What they're required to do is to run the ad within the framework of the existing campaign finance limits. That is, they can't take direct corporate or union contributions, and they must disclose what they're spending. So they're actually not banned from speaking. Uh, But I should back up, too, and say that I actually didn't say that the threat of corruption justifies the existing regime. I was very careful not to do that. What I said is that the threat of corruption makes it difficult to argue that all rules should be thrown out and that we should live in a world without rules. Uh, I actually am in favor of a lot of caution and care in the realm of regulation and campaign finance. And as I say, you go back to my idea of floors, not ceilings. I don't believe in tying public funding to limits on spending. I believe if you want public funding, it should just be out there so candidates can reach a particular threshold to get their message out, but that private money should be within the system. So, um, you know, I'm not sure I can, I'm really not the one to defend that law because I didn't write it and I, I wasn't trying to justify it in this particular discussion. But I would say that it's not quite the draconian limit on free speech that it is sometimes portrayed to be. It's more um, something that's geared toward uh, encouraging transparency and some kind of accountability. Uh, what? Go on. You go ahead. Well, one point I would like to make that, you know, actually there are, we sometimes talk about prohibitions and bans, and we need to be careful about that. Um, In the United States, people, if you do stuff people don't like, they don't show up and take you off to jail too often. Uh, What they do is if you run ads. Unless you criticize the vice president. If you run ads that threaten people, you find that the rules change in such a way that it becomes much harder to do that. Or if you're in a prohibited category, you can't raise the money. It really does involve money and not speech. But by regulating the money, because the money is connected to the speech, you can raise the transaction cost of making the effort and effectively prohibit the speech. Commissioner von Spakovsky is referring to the Federal Election Commission's recent and failed effort uh, to provide an exemption for grassroots lobbying speech, relief from this particular prohibition on the kind of advertising he described, which is advertising on an issue that refers to a particular uh, candidate for federal office who is an elected official, who may be an elected official, 
within 30 days of a primary and 60 days of a general election. Uh, the Commission was unable to make a decision about that um, for purposes of disclosure, I might add, of the, of, the, of the obligatory kind. I represented parties who very much wished to have that exemption. I personally uh, think, it, uh, quite apart from my professional duty in the instance, happened to think it was well justified by virtually any measure and hope that one day, by virtue of the Supreme Court's behavior, we can revisit this issue. But this is the point I want to make. Over time, the hypothetical that he sets out, which is a, not only a hypothetical, this is a real restriction on speech, and it's now in effect in the United States, comes to be absorbed by everybody as simply the way things are. It doesn't strike anyone as at all odd uh, that the government's response to someone who runs such an ad is to invite them to do one of two things, to set up a regulated political committee, which if you think about it is a way of offering them the opportunity to provide the speech but on a licensed basis, file a form of the federal government, set up a political committee, abide by rules, and then you can run that ad. Oops, vote passed. Or alternatively, shut the pack down once the vote is behind you because the license has served its purpose. Or alternatively, as a colleague of mine in the reform community uh, recently said with some exasperation, it isn't a problem at all for people who run those ads. All they have to do is avoid mentioning the name of the federal elected official. They can excise the name of the official from the advertising. So here you have two notions which are really quite extraordinary that have come to be viewed as ordinary course thoughts about political speech in the United States. Apply for a license or edit your speech and edit it in the most material fashion by removing the very name of the person to whom the speech is addressed, thereby, presum thereby presumably sending your audience scurrying to try to figure out who you are trying to influence. And so I just think that we step back and realize how far this debate has progressed, that we find those kinds of questions uh, really quite undisturbing and very much part of the ordinary assumptions we make about political speech in the United States. All right. I want to thank Bob Bauer and Eliza Carney for being here to comment on the book. I want to thank John Samples for doing the book. And I invite all of you to join us upstairs for a sandwich and a copy of the book. <laughs>